Welcome back to the Youth Bible in One Year, day 93. What do you love? We love all kinds of things, but how do we love people? And how does God love us? The Bible says that God's love for us is so incredible that he's even willing to forgive our sins and overlook our mistakes. Jesus came to earth to take the punishment for our sins and so that we could have a relationship with God forever. So how do we show the love that God has shown us to others today? Four bullets hit Pope John Paul II, two of them lodging in his lower intestine, the others hitting his left hand and right arm. This assassination attempt of the Pope in May 1981 left him severely wounded and with considerable blood loss. His health was never the same again. In July 1981, the perpetrator, Ali Agkar, was sentenced to life imprisonment. Pope John Paul II asked people to pray for my brother Agkar, whom I have sincerely forgiven. Two years later, he was to take the hand of Ali Agkar, then in prison, and quietly tell him that he'd forgiven him for what he'd done, even though this would-be killer had not asked for forgiveness. He developed a friendship over the years, meeting Akhar's mother in 1987 and his brother a decade later. In June 2000, Akhar was pardoned by the Italian president at the Pope's request. In February 2005, Akhar sent a letter to the Pope wishing him well. When the Pope died, on the 2nd of April 2005, Akhar's brother Adrian gave an interview saying that Akhar and his entire family were grieving and that the Pope had been a great friend to them. Pope John Paul II's response of love and mercy is exemplary. God's love and mercy is even more extraordinary because at the cross of Jesus, pardon is complete. Love and justice mingle. Truth and mercy meet. From Psalm 40. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and your saving help. I do not conceal your love and your faithfulness from the great assembly. Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me. Love and truth. Jesus personified God's love, but he also said, I'm the truth. The Holy Spirit pours God's love into your heart but is also the spirit of truth. Truth becomes hard if it's not softened by love. Love becomes soft if it's not strengthened by truth. David says, I do not conceal your love and your truth. He prays, may your love and your truth always protect me. He does not see love and truth as mutually exclusive in any sense, but rather as complementary. The truth about God is that he loves you. He is righteous and faithful, and he brings justice upon the earth. As love and truth go together, so do justice and mercy. The concepts of righteousness and justice are very closely related in Scripture. In this passage, it's on the basis of his knowledge of God's righteousness that David pleads for God's mercy. Do not withhold your mercy from me, O Lord. My sins have overtaken me, and I cannot see. Sin binds us. We need God's mercy and forgiveness so that we can see clearly. Lord, may your love and your truth always protect me. New Testament from Luke 9 Jesus took Peter, John and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. 
As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and made him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead, who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him, because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. Love and mercy. Have there been mountaintop experiences of the presence of God in your life when you felt extraordinarily close to Jesus? This passage begins with such an experience. Jesus takes Peter, John and James onto a mountain to pray. As Jesus is praying, they see him transfigured before them. They see his glory. Peter says to Jesus, Master, this is a great moment. They become deeply aware of God. They hear God say, This is my Son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. However, like the disciples who came down from the mountain, there comes a time when you too must descend. Mountaintops inspire us, but valleys mature us. The tough realities of life awaited the disciples at the bottom. Failure in their ministry, lack of understanding and rivalry but the experience of the mountain can help you to see your life down below in a new and different way. Jesus calls his followers to a love that is all-embracing. He calls you to welcome people. Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Welcome people regardless of what they can do for you. How you welcome people really matters. Some people are warm and welcoming, others are not. Some churches are warm and welcoming, others are not. I've been hugely inspired by many of the churches we visited and the welcome they give to every person who arrives at their services. They seem to have a profound understanding that in welcoming people, they welcome Jesus. And in welcoming Jesus, they welcome the one who sent him. John said, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Jesus replied, 
do not stop him. For whoever is not against you is for you. Accept people beyond your own immediate circles, denomination and traditions. If they're not against Jesus, they're for him. Welcome them as such. On the other hand, do not be surprised if you are not always welcomed. Even Jesus was not always welcome. As Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, he sent messengers ahead of him who went into the Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him. My immediate response to not being welcomed would be similar to that of James and John to seek revenge. When the disciples saw how Jesus was treated, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? However, revenge is not the right response. Jesus turned and rebuked them. Jesus, who is the truth, and who was to take God's justice on himself on the cross, shows us what it means to love even our enemies and have mercy on them. Lord, help me to love like Jesus in an all-embracing way. Help me never to seek revenge, but to extend mercy and love even to my enemies. Old Testament from Numbers 35 and 36 If anyone with malice aforethought pushes another or throws something at them intentionally so that they die, or if out of enmity one person hits another with their fist so that the other dies, that person is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when they meet. But if without enmity someone suddenly pushes another or throws something at them unintentionally, or without seeing them drops on them a stone heavy enough to kill them, and they die. Then since no harm was intended, the assembly must judge between the accused and the avenger of blood according to these regulations. These are the commands and regulations the Lord gave through Moses to the Israelites on the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho. Love and Justice The whole of Israel's national life was directly governed by God. It was operating in a very different world to our own. Some of the laws do have a universal application. Others were specific to ancient Israel. Here we see the beginnings of a code of legal practice that was specific to ancient Israel. Capital punishment for murder was an expression of the sanctity of human life. It was because the taking of a human life was so serious that the penalty needed to be so severe. This was a society in which the alternative, life imprisonment, for example, was not really practical. We see here a distinction was made between murder, with malice and forethought, and what was effectively manslaughter, without hostility and unintentionally. We see the beginnings of the right of trial by jury, that is, by the people. Those accused of a crime are to appear before the community in court. The community is to judge. The avenger of blood was not taking private vengeance, the matter had to be brought before the court, the assembly. By more than one witness and the decision was made by the court, there had to be really good evidence. There must be no bribery. The New Testament makes a distinction between the dealings of the state and personal morality. Governing authorities are established by God, and the one in authority is God's servant to do you good. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. The state is concerned with the protection of others. To stand by and allow injustice would actually be unloving and unchristian. It would be to allow evil to go unchecked and to ignore the pain of the victims. 
Yet in personal morality, we're told, both by Jesus and the Apostle Paul, not to take revenge. This attitude of love and forgiveness is not to deny justice, but rather it is an expression of trust in God's ultimate justice. As we trust in God's justice, we are empowered to imitate his love. As Miroslav Volf writes, the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. He explains that when we know that the torturer will not eternally triumph over the victim, we are free to rediscover that person's humanity and imitate God's love for them. The distinction between our own morality and that of the state creates a tension within us all. We are all individuals with a command from Jesus not to retaliate or take revenge. We are also citizens of the state with a duty to prevent crime and bring wrongdoers to justice. It's not easy to hold this tension, but an attitude of love requires that we do. Our motive should always be love and justice, not retaliation or revenge. In every situation, we need to act with an attitude of love. Lord, help me to combine a passion for truth and justice with an attitude of love and mercy. Pepper adds, In Luke 9, verse 46, it said, An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. I can't believe that the disciples are arguing again about who is the greatest. Well, at least they're honest. In verse 48, it says, For whoever is least among you all is the greatest. True humility is a beautiful and inspiring thing. Let's pray. God, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you sent your son to die for me. Strengthen me today to love others as you love me. Help me when it's difficult to love people. Fill me up with your spirit today. In Jesus' name, amen.